0: Hey, what's going on, good people? It's Gardner Douglas, your oyster ninja. I'm here with a legend. And when I say legend, I mean a real life legend. Mr. Vincent Legend is a author, is a uh, lobbyist, I found out. Um, Well, we got historian, founder of the Blacks uh, of the Chesapeake Foundation, all of the above. I can keep going. Do you want me to keep going? Are you? I guess I need to leave something for you to say. Um, right.
1: Mr. Vincent, how you feel? Feeling good. Feeling good. Uh, all is well. I'm uh, beaming live from on the Chesapeake Bay down here in Annapolis, Maryland. And the uh, water is sparkling and the seagulls are circling. So it's a good day on the bay.
0: No doubt. No doubt. Tell me a little bit, man. Let's just start. Let's get jump right into it, man. How did you grow up? How did you get into this lifestyle?
1: Well, I describe myself as a country boy from East Baltimore. And once you stop laughing and your listening audience stop laughing, saying ain't nothing country in East Baltimore. uh, The reason I say that is, is that both of my parents were born in North Carolina. My mom from the Rocky Mount area. My dad from further south below Fayetteville, North Carolina, Fort Bragg, places like that, uh, going down to Lumberton, laurenburg and Maxton, North Carolina, and they migrated to Baltimore uh, in the 50s. But every summer, uh, they would crate my older brother up and my younger sister and send us down the country every summer. And we went down there to our grandparents' farms and cotton and tobacco and watermelons and cantaloupes and fishing and hunting. And what I I
0: mean to interrupt, but don't do me like that.
1: Don't do (laughs) me like that, man. I'm sorry (laughs) for interrupting. (laughs) But what I will say is that that provide a great uh, respite from the grit and grind of East Baltimore, the asphalt and the concrete. So what I would say is I've always had a connection to land always a connection to a land-based society. And even with both my parents from being from the Carolinas, my mom's side of the family lived in a town named after them. I mean, my dad, granddad uh, had a farm, had seven boys and my mom was the only girl. So he started out with chips on the table. That's seven dudes you don't need to hire and he had a little uh, general store in town and everything worked on credit. And and they called him uh, Kingfish, uh, Mr. Arthur Smith. And when I went down to the country on my summer vacations, he had a, a straw hat with a green supervisor, green sun visor built into the bill. And he had one for me. So he was big Kingfish and I was little Kingfish. And he only had two rules, Gardner. One is, when he's ready, be ready. The second rule is, don't tell your grandmama where you've been. And uh, I was able to do both. I mean, he would get up before the crack of dawn, eat one egg and one sausage, and I was in the pickup truck. And uh, we would head out in the morning, and he would drop me off at the pool room, and Leave me a quarter, leave the boys a quarter so I could get some naps and a Yoo-Hoo soda. And uh, I never ratted them out. I mean, Grandma felt good saying, well, a little kingfish with him, he can't go but so far off. But uh, I-, I developed a nice pool game in town because that's where I hung out until it was time for him to pick me up. <laughs> now, Ads people were tenant farmers and sharecroppers. And you can always see where this is going. I mean, they lived on the same farm that their foreparents lived on in little shanties and shacks on the North 40 of the property or down in the hollow or down in the bottom, it was never choice land. And uh, they worked on shares and we lived in extended families with a whole bunch of cousins and all of that. But they were hard working church going people And so even my experience in the South, where one one grandfather owned his farm and leased other farms, was a leader in the Farm Bureau, and my dad's people were sharecroppers or tenant farmers. And so I really got a chance to see both worlds. Uh, And then if you marry that with, when the summer's over, I'm back in East Baltimore and uh, you or your viewing and listening audience might remember The Wire. Well, many of the streets that The Wire was filmed on was streets that I played on, ran on, and and I would say, uh, I knew the alleys better than the city, streets, so I'll stop right there. Your audience can translate that sentence. I knew the alley better than the streets. But what that did was shaped who I am and who I became, because I do believe, Gardner, that uh, 95 the 90 percent of who we are are shaped by the time we're seven, eight, nine years old, and the trajectory is set. So I think that really got kind of baked in my DNA. You're seeing people in charge, owning stuff, running stuff, but also the value of family, because even on my dad's side, my great grandmother could remember seeing her siblings sold into slavery in the South. I mean, so, cause I'm only three generations away. I mean, sometimes it sounds like ancient history, but uh, three generations away is not a big leap from that period. So I think that got me interested. And so uh, fishing and hunting with my dad and his brothers, and we had a sportsman's club, and we were hunting in the North, Carol- in the Carolinas, Maryland's Eastern Shore, fish. So that gave me an orientation, I would say, to uh, outdoor life, environmental life. And uh, got a chance to meet watermen uh, through my dad and just seeing people that uh, worked the bay. So it just opened up a, a whole vista that I didn't know existed. So I think that's where some of the early beginnings are and it just got refined over time.
0: Man, I can just imagine, um, like just you going through that timeline, um, I can just imagine the things you've seen, heard, the changes. I mean, even in Baltimore, we don't have to go to the country. Uh, it's just in Baltimore, the changes. Um, but uh, I, I do want to go back to um, just bringing... Uh, Youth, because that was going to be one of my questions anyway um and just the importance of getting them involved um in the environment and on the waterways and teaching them about their history like how do you think well you hit it um far as the impact but like i know that had to set you apart from other kids because you had that experience going down to the farm the country um and your uh you know, your family having that ownership. How, did, how do you think, like looking back now, how do you think that, ba- that sets you apart
1: from other kids? Well, I think one of the biggest things, and, and I'm glad you asked the question because even I had an older brother, I'm 68, so I'm closer to 70 than 60 to give your viewing and listening audience some context, born in 1953. And as a kid growing up in East Baltimore, uh, near John Hopkins Hospital, the old Memorial Stadium, that uh, my mom's folks and my dad's folks were leaders in the church. So we grew up in the church. And so whether it was playing baseball, football, hiking, or whatever, the games wouldn't start until the legged boys got out of church. So you can see, I'll use the word empowering, uh, but plus we had access to cars and driver's license. So again, the gates wouldn't start till the legged boys got out of church. And that was just something that uh, was not an option until we got 16, 17 years of age because uh, being in the churches And Sunday school and little league, and just developing leadership opportunities, uh, a faith based life. Uh, We always had reading materials around the house. And so uh, it was a thing where uh, people accepted that. My peers accepted that. And even if there were other kids that may have been churchmen or church boys or acolytes or whatever, they didn't get the same kind of, I would say pass that we were given. And by my brother being older, uh, he was more uh, academic, more nerdy, older, And my thing was I always liked the action. I mean, and we had a big thoroughfare in the area. We grew up called Harford Road and I was banned off of Harford Road by my father. We had the bars and the pool rooms and the cut rate stores and the Chinese joints and all of that stuff. And so even my friends would be the lookout. uh, Vince, get in the shadow, here come Mr. Charlie. And so uh, I would say that that kind of attitude of mix also. And I was the type gardener that I would go up on the strip, and this is the Hoffman Road I just described, and figure out who was in charge and made myself their special assistant. So I was with the top preacher, top golfer, top hustler, Uh, top bar owner, top politician, because I learned early on from my granddad and from my dad's folks, good help was hard to find. And that's one of the things that really got drilled into me. Vince always be good help. And subsequently, I worked for five governors because that same thing that got instilled in me at eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old has carried to even today. And what I found is that the system tries to keep good help out of harm's way. I'll say that again, Doc. The system, whether it's the guys in the alley or the guys in the White House, they protect good help because it's hard to find and it's valued. And I've kind of lived my life uh, trying to be good help.
0: Nice, man.
1: And there are occasions where the guys will say, Vince, sit in the car. You don't need to see this one. And I sit in the car.
0: Right, right, right.
1: Or if I say, well, look, man, you can't drive that uh, apple red, Bonneville convertible down in front of my house, my mama don't like that look. Right, right, well, right. do will pick you up around the corner, but you're going. <laughs> <laughs> got uh, you, got and you. I would say going back to your initial question is, it's all about exposure. And so as I work with young people, is what I try to do is to give them as much exposure as I can And let them find their own path, but keep exposing them to things. Exposure, exposure, because I think that's where I got my competitive edge yet. Exposure in the country, exposure in the city, my own inquisitiveness. So that's what I would say as I work with young people. And let them find their way, let them find their passion. And even if they don't realize it that day, something's going to get planted in them that might trigger something later
0: man that's a perfect answer man good you didn't did this before huh you did this before well this just my (laughs) what's that this is just my second rodeo (laughs) (laughs) man that's cool man um so how how did you um what came first the 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 books or um the actual uh Blackstone Chesapeake Foundation
1: Well, what happened is, is that uh, underneath of being a historian and author and writer and all of that, the skill set underneath of all of that is I'm really one of the top planners in the DMV, land use planning, politics with a small p. Uh, My dad was a labor leader. He was a neighborhood leader. Uh, my mom and dad were both trained in elementary education out of Federal Teachers College, but my dad couldn't make money as a teacher back in the 40s and so forth. But my mom taught special education. And let me just stop there for a minute. That people that teach special education are gifted people. Very gifted people. Her students came before us. Her thing was, y'all really don't need nothing, so we're going down to Brodick Gutman's, and we're going to get some school kids, some clothes, and some food, and this and that. If there's anything left, I'll get y'all something. Well, for my brother and myself, it means get on the street and start working. At one time, I had seven jobs. I mean, was just always hustling, and uh, some of the jobs was on the books, and some were off the books, but if I wanted nicer things, my dad was paying for fish heads. And if I wanted Converse's or Jack Purcell's, uh, you had to make the difference up. If I asked my dad, uh, do you have a quarter? He want to know what you want it for. And he's only going to give you one answer. Uh, if you would say potato chips, you say, well, we got some corn curls in the back, eat them. So, so you had to have an answer or you wasn't going to get the quarter we would go to the supermarket, you could get one item. And mine was a jack in the box, the surprise came with it. My brother went with the baby roof. So again, I think it's those kinds of things. So I think what had happened was uh, I went to high school in Baltimore, I went to University of Maryland, uh, Baltimore County, they call it UMBC thought I wanted to be a geography major because we had growing up in the 50s, we lived in an integrated community in East Baltimore. And I think that made a difference. Integrated row house. They call them townhouses now, but they were shot during row houses. But she gave me all of her national geographics. And she introduced me to raisin bread. Never heard of the stuff before. My mom and myself would walk up to the bakery and buy day old bread. Uh, when I started eating raisin bread, I really thought I was somebody. And National Geographics, I mean, she had them tied with string, years and years of National Geographics. And what that did for me, uh, Gardner, was just open a whole world about culture and history, some of the most beautiful photographs. And when I had to do school projects, science projects, my kids was bringing Jet and Ebony and Afro-American newspapers you couldn't read. I was coming in there on my poster boards with stuff from National Geographic. So my stuff was going on a bulletin board and winning the awards because uh, you can imagine National Geographic look is a little different than uh, Girl of the Week from Jet or from uh, Ebony magazine. And I'll throw in some... Uh, race stuff but it was still more national geographic beautiful people animals scenery and so again that's another seed that got planted and again exposure i mean i traveled around the world from my basement just through national geographic so always expanding so i was at umbc i thought i wanted to be a geography major and i think it really came from the national geographics is put me on that trajectory. I like art, I love maps. But uh, after two years, I think I might've had uh, 20 credits after two years. All of my friends got put out of school. I didn't have any credits, but I had a great GPA. I mean, I would start out with 16 credits, drop everything, end up with six and at least I got a C in the ones with sixes. And so I was able to transfer out of there because even when I went to college, I always knew good help was hard to find. And so I was working with the progressive professors and in the clubs and taking courses like the psychology of racism and was an assistant to the professors and the progressives on campus. And they saw value in me and helped me transfer to Morgan State University. And I majored in urban planning and community development. A professor, Dr. Homer Favor, had a five-year Ford Foundation for $5 million in the 70s. He had more power at Morgan than the president. The 70s were for five, and they set up the Center for Urban Affairs. And also, I made a decision that I didn't want to be an A student. It I had other interests. And so 2.0, 2.5, I think out of 128 college credits, I got one A because I wasn't willing to do what A students do. I mean, I was working. I was a member of the Student Senate. I was Attorney General of Morgan Student Court. I was working internships, and so I just strive to have a broader experience, and I was okay, and I was cool with it. I was impressed to be an A student. I was impressed to be a B student. Uh, a strong C uh, with other things in it was really what I strive for, and I'm not an A student today. I'm a strong right, right. C.
0: A nice diversity portfolio.
1: Yes. We're going to fill it up
0: a little bit. I got you, man. I got you.
1: And so I would say that those were the early beginnings. And so I think maybe around the 1980s is when I caught the spirit of the Chesapeake. I was working for the school system in Baltimore for five years as a planner. Uh, And then I got recruited to Anne Arundel School System. As a planner, and eventually uh, headed up their planning division for Anne Arundel Schools, because most of the people in urban planning went to city planning, regional planning, planning agencies. Very few went to educational facilities planning. So I think that just put me in a different context around educators, researchers, PhDs, and because traditionally in public education, planners were principals who got in trouble. They would put you in timeout, send you to headquarters to draw maps and do some coloring until you get yourself together, uh, was really what planners were until it became more professionalized. And I think it was right in that time that uh, I moved to Annapolis and uh, people gave me a letter of introduction to Annapolis, to the state Capitol. And so I think that's around the mid eighties is when this whole idea of of Blacks of the Chesapeake came about because rather than uh, complaining about what school systems had or didn't have in terms of curriculum we began to do research, write our own books, curriculum guides, doing documentary films, and three decades later, here we stand.
0: Well, I got, I got to say thank you, man, because uh, without that legwork, what will we have? I, I I can honestly say that I can say without that legwork, what will we have? Who would have wrote that book? Who would have told those stories? Um, who would I look to because I, 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 can't go to my, I can talk to my dad, but there's no generation before him. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, Damn. I wasn't really um aware of the history of the Chesapeake or really black history period. I, my grandmother really didn't talk about it a lot. Um, she just told us how much she worked and that was mm. it. She, but she didn't really go into the stories. So for me to, um, you know, uh, read Blacks of the Chesapeake or, or talk to you or look at your post or anything like that. Um, it gives me that that. I don't know. It gives me the knowledge, of course, but it also gives me that that connection feeling. Like, you know, this is what um, this is what I I keep pushing for. This is what I um, try to press, you know, just push positivity. Um, my posts, my, my the things I do, the, um, the way I do things, you know what I mean? And so I can add to that legacy and not take
1: away. Well, I can relate to what you're saying, because what had happened was, as I told you, I would go up the strip and see who was in charge. So I began to work with delegates and senators in Baltimore. I was a legislative assistant in the General Assembly in the 70s. Uh, came out of school in 75 when I was a chief legislative assistant by 78. And so the governor of Maryland uh, came to me because they were trying to get additional funding for Chesapeake Bay enhancement. And this was in the 80s. And the black elected officials from Baltimore and Prince George's County was having none of it that when they looked at the issues impacting their district, education, housing, equal justice of the law, they saw so many other issues that were critical to their constituents. And when the governor asked me would I go in and talk with the Legislative Black Caucus about garnering their support around save the bay, clean up the bay, they summarily dismissed me they looked at it as a greeny issue. Well, because of my relationship with the elected officials, I asked them would give me another shot at making my case. And I wrote a white paper slash a black paper called Blacks of the Chesapeake. And I showed that African-Americans worked at Bethlehem Steel and that's a shipbuilding company. I don't know what you think they're doing in Blast Furnace 19, but that's Bethlehem Steel at Sparrow's Point is a shipbuilding company. Uh, Domino Sugar uh, imports products from around the globe. McCormick Spice, Longshoremen, Stevedores, the General Motors plant, shipping parts in from around the world I reset the story not as an environmental issue, but as an economic issue. And the light bulbs went on. Because Save the Bay for the Bay's sake, or Save the Fish for the Tree's sake, or Save the Trees for the Tree's sake, doesn't play on Martin Luther King Boulevard in DC, Baltimore, Philly, or New York. But if once we got it framed up as an economic issue, and showing that African Americans have a rich history on the Bay as boat builders and sail makers and owners of seafood processing plants and own some of the best restaurants and uh, built some of the best implements on farms and the military com- conquest as it related to the Bay. I mean, going back to Francis Scott Key at Fort McHenry, Uh, War of 1812, Civil War. I mean, we were the backbone of the seafood and maritime industry, backbone of the agricultural industry. And so once I was able to marry the, the economic impact with the historical and the cultural impact, people said, come on in a little closer. And from that, come on a little closer. I've been able to pivot from there uh, to this day.
0: So that's, that's exactly one of the points I wanted to hit. And what it sounds like to me is you're bridging that gap. You know, you, you're looking for the common denominator. Common denominators are actually what what the, the people with the power think uh, is important. And you're bringing it in so it ties in all together.
1: Well, he's exactly right. I mean, at one time I had a business card that said expediter. And after people stopped laughing at that, I mean, they didn't quite understand what an expediter is. But expediters walk between views. And again, this was a case where the governor wanted something. The legislative leaders wanted something. And they said, well, Vince, see if you can work it out. And if you get caught behind enemy lines, I didn't send you. I said, mm. look, that's what I grew up in. Because, <laughs> <laughs> God, I know when it go down, you ain't going to cover it no way. So that, that didn't frighten me. I, I, You're going to be hanging out there on your own. He went rogue. We didn't see him. We don't know why he was even over there talking to them people. But my thing was find a common square everybody can live on. And it's off the books, Uh, it's not formal, it's on the back of the boat, uh, uh, out rabbit hunting or wherever I need on the golf course. Right. And uh, it wasn't around conference tables. And I think again, uh, so often uh, as a kid, uh, whether you're working with limited resource people or big house people, they always want to go somewhere you can't go. And again, that was another driver for me. And so if y'all going to the country club, I'm going. Uh, Took some lessons, Uh, I hung out with the golf pros in East Baltimore, Mm -hmm. Uh, fishing, hunting, Uh, Had some academic credentials, if that's what you want to do. I mean, former school board president and worked with governors and ran multi million dollar housing agencies. But what I've learned is only put up the sales that are required. I mean, nobody is running around full mass if they got any sense. Right, right. You really try to get decisions made at the lowest level you can. I mean, that's the art of politics. Get decisions made at the lowest level you can, not at the highest level. And that's what I do as a lobbyist. I don't even want to talk to members of Congress, senators, or delegates. I deal with staff people. We get a dozen boiled eggs, and we sit around the conference room, and we just eat boiled eggs and talk.
0: So let's talk about um, Blacks of the Chesapeake Foundation, man. Um, Mm -hmm. So- what what is Black City Chesapeake Foundation?
1: I would say overall it is an educational organization. It stands on four pillars. Four pillars. Education, historical, cultural, and environmental. And uh, that's really what we stand on, and that's how we're divided and organized around those four pillars. Uh, All of it is education, but we work toward more informal education because I have worked at community college, a couple of school districts, been school board president and trying to infiltrate nine to three education is like the Bermuda Triangle, stuff going the front door and nothing comes out the back door and I'm speaking from an insider. As an insider, you go in the front door, it's the Bermuda Triangle, and nothing comes out the back door. Bureaucracy, politics, personalities, accountability now. So we have found a, a softer, easier way, after school, summer programs, it's less rules, less regulations, you got more flexibility And so that's how we fashion our educational initiatives. Uh, Yes, I was able to uh, get my books and my writing approved by school districts throughout the Mid-Atlantic region as supplemental materials of instruction. And that's partly because they viewed me as an insider with my educational background. It's hard to walk off the street, Baltimore City, Prince George, Montgomery, you name it. You'll run out of dollars before you get to the goal line or get frustrated. So that's one part of it. Another part of it is history. And what I would say is the African-American watermen and women whose lives have been shaped by the Bay will always be the core of our work and celebrating their stories because their stories weren't told uh 30 years ago many of the people i interviewed were 70 years old 30 years ago and life on the bay off writers lifestyle depression loss uh as the uh regulation of the Bay increased and the bounty of the Bay decreased, it collided on a way of life. Right. In the African-American community, our mamas and grandmamas aren't encouraging us to pursue that way of life. Right. Education has always been the way up and out for us as a downtrodden people. And so we'll always tell that story and tell about the roles that women played as well. And I'm glad that I learned that lesson 30 years ago where I was over in Bellevue, uh, the Turner people, St. Michael's in that area, uh, and they own seafood processing companies and those things. And I kind of showed up and started talking about how people lived in shanties and ABC and Miss Helen Turner grabbed me by my jowls. This is the little soft meat in your jar there, Gardner. Drugged me across the oyster floor, pointed to a split level rancher up on the hill and said, you sound like them people. Uh-oh, uh-oh. You sound like them people. That's where I live. I picked, I shuck, I sent my kids to the best colleges this university have and don't come in here with that mess. There you go. And then hug me. (laughs) I love you, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Gave me some love uh, because here the four, no one had even stopped by to hear the backstory. Nobody that looked like them that wanted to hear not only their successes, but their setbacks, their failures, and didn't jump out the car with a camera and a pad. We just kind of sat around a pot belly stove and ate the catch of the day and talked with hope for tomorrow. Uh, So again, as they call it in the old days, bedside manners and tableside manners. I mean, I grew up with bedside manners and tableside manners and it makes a difference so that's the and we'll always stick with that as a part of who we are but then the culture is looking at the the arts of it I mean what we try to do is as an educator is that some of us learn by touching, some learn by smelling, some learn by listening, some learn by reading, that a master teacher takes the students from where they are and have a toolkit of strategies to meet the young person where they are. My dad, as I told you, mom and dad was trained in elementary education. My dad became the number two or number one, number two or number three guy in masonry in Merlin and its jurisdictions. But the guys he worked with for guys at the steel plant, police officers, community people, people in his neighborhood that as I look at it retrospectively that he deemed had character, but not necessarily had the academics. And again, by him being trained in elementary education, teaching kindergartners, first graders, nobody above sixth grade, because that's as far as schooling went back then. And we'll just see how he worked with men and men that rose up. And they weren't the doctor, lawyer, Indian chiefs. They were there, but I watched him and how he worked with people. Uh, and so those kind of things, again, we're just talking about nurturing an environment. And so what we've done with Blackville or Chesapeake, we have people have done documentary story quilts, film, uh, we do all histories if we can't find a photograph, I commissioned artists, even the cover of my book, The Chesapeake Bay Through Ebony Eyes. This was a white guy that designed that book cover, but he's done over 60 other pieces for me. This guy was the kind that he lived in Annapolis, he moved to Baltimore, and he would walk around with two cats on a leash up on Lombard Street and Holland Street in the middle of the hood. and you don't bother anybody walking no. to Kelly's no, <laughs> not at all hey, hey doc it got to be some easier targets out there right but this guy worked in triple art pens and so when people would buy race car kits or battleship kits he would do all the diagramming that would fold up about the size of a 50 cent piece of a battleship. And so I went to his house one day in Baltimore and I'm a doodler. And I was talking to him about Blacks in the Chesapeake. First thing he did was knock the pencil out of my hand and there ain't gonna be but one doodler <laughs> around. You just talk because your flow, your doodling is throwing off my flow. You just talk. And I just explained to him about Blacks of the Chesapeake and what it meant to me and what I was trying to do. A week later, he called me up and said, Vince, come up, I wanna show you something. And it's the cover to the book. I said, print it. That he translated what I was feeling, the spirit that I caught, and what I was trying to articulate. And so when I do oral histories, and if it was an image that I didn't have, he would draw it for me. Uh, We've done documentary films and things. And so the point there, Gardner, is we all learn differently. And so I try to have Blacks of the Chesapeake like the Vegematic. I'm gonna show you 36 ways to slice up a carrot, and you might connect with one of those methods. It might trigger something on you to lean in and say, hey, I can do that, or give me your iteration, give me your version. And so I think that's another part of, because one of the things we're trying to do is move the Blacks of the Chesapeake from a personality-based organization, because I have a large personality. Uh, For 30 years, people have just heard Vince Leggett, Blacks of the Chesapeake. As I told you, I'm closer to 70 than 60 and that model was not sustainable. And so now I'm working with another set of smart people saying, well, what are the core values of Blacks of the Chesapeake? What are the core messages of Blacks of the Chesapeake so we can train the trainer? I might not be available, but we have people that's working out of the IBM book. Right, I got you. Blue, not any blue, IBM blue, and this is the workbook. And even going back through the civil rights movement and other major movements around the country and the world, there was a manual. I mean, people weren't making it up as they go along. They can nibble around the edges, but there are some core principles And so some of those principles, Garner, is that we try to leave people better than we found them. Uh, Do no harm. Endeavor toward that. It might not work out that way. Uh, Give more than we get. Uh, Try to operate in spirit and in truth. Try to do things decent and in order. And as my granddaddy said, and people really misunderstand me, misunderstand Blacks of the Chesapeake, people think I'm all over the place. I'm really not Gardner. What what my granddaddy Arthur Smith said, Vince, plow between the ditches and you're always on your farm. Let me say that again, Doc. Plow between the ditches and you're always on your farm. So you don't have to guess where you are working. your field or not. Plow between the ditches. If you jump over a ditch, you off your farm. Don't weed it. Don't seed it. Don't worry about it. And so people say, well, he started a bunch. Don't finish nothing. He here, he there, he all over the place. I'm really not. I'm really plowing between the ditches i don't know if you do you follow that a little
0: bit no i follow it all the way it sounds like it sounds like me (laughs) it sounds like me okay no that that, that's what i that's what i get it sounds like my my whole goal was anytime you see oysters or hear about oysters i wanted my name to be attached to it yes so we got the raw bar so we got the podcast so we yes. got the social media, so we got the interviews, so we got, you know, dot, dot, dot. It goes on and on. So no, I got you. Plow between the ditches. Yes. You got it? You got it, Doc? I like that. I'm going to start saying dot now, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, man. I think, you know what, man? I think we got to do a couple parts to this because th- this is good, man. This is good. This is what we needed. This is what I needed. Um, I got a bunch of questions, but I don't even want to, um,
1: I don't want to start them. I'm not going to lie. I don't want to start them. Well, can, can, can I just give you my takeaway then? Yeah, for sure. A couple of points I wanted to get across to you and your viewing. Uh, one thing i found is for a project you've been working on for 30 years, I don't want to start back in the beginning. What I want to do is tell you what I worked on today and what I worked on yesterday. Because I'm at the point now intuitively is who or what comes across the screen is who I need to be focused on. I don't really need to do anything new. It's connect those dots. So one big initiative we have is that we have been working with the Maryland State Archives, John Hopkins University and other organizations to inventory digitize and catalog the 30 year Blacks of the Chesapeake collection. Over 40,000 photographs, inferior material, memorabilia, material records, oral histories, VHS, cassette tapes to one, make it more accessible to ourselves. I mean, I have stuff underneath the beds uh, at outlaw's house, at in-law's house, uh, uh, written outside storage. I mean, I have about eight, five drawer metal file cabinets that are so far back in the storage room, I can't even pull the door open on the file cabinet in the last 10 years. And so, That's what we are working through, trying to raise money toward. It's a multi-year project. But again, training people in archival science, library science, how to digitize, how to write metadata around photography, uh, genealogy. And so it's just not doing the work, but make that a learning experience. Showing people careers in conservation, careers in history, careers in computer science working on real stuff, not hypothetical. So that's a big part of where we are right now. The other part is to uh, continue to not only expand the bandwidth of the Blacks of the Chesapeake, but expand the depth of it because the Blacks of the Chesapeake uh, has always ran more lateral because as I said, many of the people I was involved with that had the records and the stories were 70 years old, 30 years ago. And so, as the landscape is vanishing with climate change, sea level rise, uh, there are more, more funerals than baby showers in the communities that we are important to us. And so, I never really took the time to do empire building. I was too busy rescuing artifacts, uh, gleaning information from fragile people rather than empire building with a whole bunch of overhead. Then you become a grant chaser and get off of the mother load because I knew that I was sitting on the mother load. And so many people say, well, Vince, the grass is greener here. Why don't you do this? But all this over here and do that would have took me off mission because for me, this body of work is ministry. It's a spiritual thing. It's people that have been trusted their story, their lives, their artifacts. I'm a steward and a caretaker. I'm a keeper of the trust. I'm a keeper of the charge, and I walk in that. I walk in that spirit. So that's another big part of it. But right now we're looking at land conservation, identifying historical sites, but uh, still trying to put together an operating model that's still lean and mean, still lean and mean. So, we use contract employees, consultant agreements, project agreements. I'm not trying to build a standing army Mm -hmm. because you need to remain strategic and tactical to take advantage of opportunities. Who wants a Titanic that you can't turn around? Right, right. But you still need some basic core infrastructure. So, again, those are the kinds of things that I'm endeavoring toward now. Keep the archival stuff moving. Put in a technical force. I mean, you have a a background. You understand these words. Right. No, I got you. Because armies travel on their belly. And as Margaret Mead said, and as a copper of old said, give him five or six committed people and he'll turn this whole thing around. I believe that. Because having a stadium or a gymnasium of people that's at odds, don't agree, different points of view, I'm too old for that. I'm not buying uh, green tomatoes or green bananas at this part of my life. I'm on to go a shovel ready, boss.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're not waiting around for nothing to get right. I need to know.
1: No, no, no. So and that's what the last couple of days have been at for me, kind of pulling together infrastructure, keeping the archival things moving uh, because opportunities come in every day. We had Al Roker's office from New York down here working with me three weeks ago. They wanted to do a piece off of our platform called From the Bay to the Table. So I was coordinating crabbers and boats and restaurants. and. I got interviews with NBC and CBS next week because as the, I look at the Blacks of the Chesapeake as an aircraft courier that's been hidden in plain sight, sitting in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, stand by, we're getting ready to hit the, hit the switch. And an aircraft carrier is going to show up in the middle of this Chesapeake Bay called Blacks of the Chesapeake because even the Empire State Building or the Chrysler Building, the marvel of those buildings is what's under the ground. It ain't the steel and glass you see towering up above Manhattan or above the Chicago skyline. The infrastructure has been quietly built for 30 years around Blacks of the Chesapeake. So bringing up the glass and steel or the people, that's the easy part of it, but the infrastructure is in place so and you and others to join in and it's room on the ship so
0: i'm on the ship uh i'm not even asked yeah. for a ticket or nothing like that i'm on the ship yeah. uh sometimes you gotta talk yourself on the boat uh, but, right. <laughs> but i'll <laughs> say this man um like i said we, we're gonna continue this conversation mm-hmm. um but as of now to the listeners to the viewers How can they help um, add fuel to this this, this trip, this boat? Like, how can just a normal person help out um, on this journey? Um, Are you just looking for monetary? Are you looking for skills? Um, How can a normal person help
1: out? Well, I would call it the three T's. And again, that's part of the Blacks of the Chesapeake model. Your time, your talent, and your treasure. I'll take all. Because so often people think, you know, write you a check. I mean, you may have some assets in your portfolio that I'll be shortchanging myself taking the check. Let's talk it through. Uh, Your your talent, your ideas, your time. And it's a big tent. It's a user-friendly tent. Uh, It's a platform that other people can achieve their dreams from. So it's just not my dream or the blacks of the chesapeake dream but everybody needs infrastructure good help is still hard to find step step out there you'll find out and that we have built trust in communities uh so i think that's a big part of it and again you can google vince Leggett, google blacks of the chesapeake Uh, It'll lead you to websites and other things that we've been doing over the last 30 years to familiarize yourself. Uh, So again, the three T's, and that's part of that manual I was telling you about, Gardner, the the Blacks of the Chesapeake Blueprint, Uh, the three T's, your time, your talent, and your treasures, Uh, bring them all to the storehouse, and let's watch what, he can do with those
0: no doubt man no doubt man i appreciate you for taking time out of your busy day moving things around on the schedule i'm gonna be honest i can't wait till this next
1: conversation i can't wait i look forward to it and i learn from you uh you're a treasure yourself you, you Thank i you i, I sew to you i lift you up everywhere i go i appreciate uh, it. you know you just do a great work and again, uh, I can learn from you. I do learn from you, and I think that it's uh, reciprocity. It's reciprocal. We can pour into each other, and so uh, I'm, I'm an all-in kind of guy. And I just look forward to working with you and and helping you reach your goals and your objectives as well.
0: Until the next time, man. We're not gonna <laughs> we're gonna we're not gonna wait that long. This, this, okay this, this 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 is gonna be good. Thank you sir. Thank you.